This episode was recorded on the country of the Kamaraigal people of the Eora Nation. Their traditional lands include the New South Wales local government areas of North Sydney, Willoughby, Mosman, Manly and Warringah. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and to any First Nations person listening to this podcast. Welcome to Weekend Birda. I'm Kirsty Costa. I'm a teacher, a science communicator, and a fangirl of Australian birds. Our guest today is John Martin, a senior ecologist at EcoShore. What drives John in his work is a quest to improve the relationship between humans and wildlife. And he is here to tell us about corellas and ibis and other big city birds. Here's how things began for John. I certainly got interested in nature and as a kid, uh, we'd go to a holiday house just a bit north of Sydney in the National Park and in the water, in the bush. And it was it was great. But how I got into birds was probably an accident more than anything. I was studying at the time and got introduced to the Australian white ibis as a management issue. And you may be familiar that in some urban areas where their nesting is seen as undesirable, the management action is to remove their nests and eggs. I was on an excursion where we uh, learnt about that and I looked at some of the literature and saw that we knew bugger all about the urban ibis population and thought, how, how can we be doing this management and not know what the size of the population is and not know what the consequences of this management is? And so I actually, at that point, was quite inspired by Feral Future and Future Eaters, books by Tim Flannery and Tim Lowe. And was particularly inspired about the whole pest space and so vertebrate pest issues, weed issues. And then this native species was being treated in the same way as the rabbit or the fox or the cane toad as this pest. And just there was lethal management. Even in some sites, they were shooting. And it was like, we don't know what the consequences are. And this is a native species. So that's that was sort of the origin. We've learnt from previous weekend birder guests that some birds have done an awesome job at changing their behaviour in order to survive in urban landscapes. John is part of the Big City Birds team. Big City Birds is a research program that is learning more about the common birds that we share our cities and towns with. It took a long time. <laughs> so I actually did my PhD research on ibis and we were colour banding birds and we were also uh, in the later stages wing tagging, uh, which was a method that allowed us to recite the birds far more easily. The plastic tags with a three-digit number on it. And of course, you could appreciate if, if people aren't familiar with the Australian white ibis, they're a stalk-like bird with really long legs. They go into wetlands and they stand in emergent vegetation. So the reeds and things grow. So when I colour banded their legs, which was how I visually identified them and said, oh, there's Sarah and there's Jane and there's John and there's George, I couldn't see the bands when they're in the water. So the wing tag's really great for that. And even when they're sitting on nests, sometimes you can still be able to see and identify individuals. And of course, we occasionally got reports from the community of marked individuals. This is before apps and before smartphones. So they all went to the Australian Bird and Bat Banding Scheme or sometimes people would just email me, but that wasn't as easy 
back then as it is today to have all this sort of information on social media and these things. So fast forward and in 2011, we actually started a research project on sulfur-crested cockatoos where we were wing-tagging them. And we were really fortunate that a German guy who was living in Sydney who would walk through the Botanic Gardens in Sydney each day to go to work and he saw these wing-tagged cockatoos He'd already fallen in love with the birds and, and then he started to be able to see individual birds and go, oh, that's the same bird that I keep interacting with because it was individually marked. And he got in touch with us. He works in IT and he said, can I build you an app so people can report sightings? My colleague Adrian said, that'd be really cool. And I said, no one's going to use it because <laughs> I'd already banded and tagged Ibis for a number of years and got very few reports despite having marked hundreds of birds. But sulfur-crested cockatoos, completely different story. While some people don't love them, lots of people do. And lots of people also feed them. So therefore, we were now getting reports from people's balconies and you know multi-story windows in the city of Sydney where cockatoos were flying up to the 10th floor to be fed and these sorts of things. And so that was the Wing Tags app. And that evolved into the Big City Birds app, which incorporates brush turkeys, ibis, cockatoos, long-billed krellers, and little krellers, but you can actually report any bird. The focus of the big city birds is behavior, and there are lots of bird apps out there, but most of them are about presence and number, not necessarily about behavior. Big City Birds has grown to be a national project with targeted areas that brings together a collaboration between universities, government, and other organizations. Citizen Science are also involved too. More on that later. John says that the program has been able to extend its remit to also research birds that travel between cities and regional areas. It's actually a national project. So we welcome reports from everywhere, but we have targeted research projects in certain areas. We're also interested in birds that aren't tagged, so birds that are just wild in the landscape. We actually had a, a PhD student working on brush turkeys and got a lot of reports from across New South Wales and Queensland, urban and non-urban, and that's great as well. It allows us to ask questions about are there differences. So why are we interested in bird behaviour is because we know that urban environments are very, very different to natural environments, and species have to change, adapt their behaviours to survive. We know that there are a bunch of species that just can't do that or aren't very good at doing that, and they become less common in urban areas. And then there are other species that are pretty darn successful and have been termed in the literature the winners. The other term you could use in the uh, sort of common language would be uh, nuisances. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you think about some of the birds that are going to be raiding the bins or going to be going to get fed in the park or backyard bird feeders and these birds that generally become quite abundant and quite tolerant of people. One of these birds is the ibis. The Australian white ibis is the ibis you're probably most familiar with. It sounds a bit like this. The Australian white ibis is mostly white as the name would suggest. Uh, it does have some black wingtips and tail feathers, but the most important thing to know about the ibis is that it has very long legs, a very long neck, and a very long bill. And I was asked a question by like a kindergarten kid one time, why is an ibis an ibis? And it was such a great question. It sort of, uh, it took me a moment to think about 
the, the framing of that question is like that is because of the, the long bill. So there are other species like spoonbills that have a long flat bill, but the ibis has a long curved bill, uh, like a pair of chopsticks, um, but with a curve, perfectly designed for probing into the water, the mud, the, the vegetation, and grabbing prey. Equally, that's why they have the long legs. Ibis, in general, are walking through water. They're walking through that sort of floodplain, grassy, wet vegetation. And those longer legs allow them to be walking through those habitats and not be in the water column. So their body isn't in the water like a duck would be. We certainly see ibis having baths and splashing and getting in the water, but they aren't a swimming bird naturally. What we see also is that ibis have a bald head mostly. Some of them um, just have a very small bald <laughs> crown, um, but uh, the Australian white ibis you'll see actually has a bald head as an adult and uh, the neck feathers grow to about halfway up the neck. Well, when they hatch as little babies, their eggs are the size of chicken eggs that we've got in the fridge at home. They're these tiny little 55 gram little chicks that are completely covered in feathers or more likely fluff at that point. Uh, including on top of their head. And they're these cute little gonzo noses. So they're, they're actually gorgeous little birds. And I encourage everyone to go and search for a picture of a baby white ibis or any baby ibis. In Australia, we have three species of ibis. Uh, the Australian white ibis isn't an endemic species, which means it also occurs outside of Australia. It occurs in Papua New Guinea and parts of Indonesia. We have the straw-necked ibis, which we also call the fancy pants ibis because it has a white feathers underneath and black feathers on top. And those black feathers have that beautiful metallic sheen in the right light. That is an endemic species. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the world, only in Australia. Uh, and then we have the glossy ibis, which is also a very attractive ibis, slightly smaller, all sort of dark brown maroon color and um, does also have the, that beautiful metallic sort of feather color. Those other two are sort of considered the more attractive ibis in Australia. But when you search for ibis online and you see the orange or scarlet or, you know, some of these other ibis overseas, you realize we sort of didn't get the prettiest ones. But they can be quite an attractive bird. You can learn more about the glossy ibis in Episode 8 with Sean Dooley. John says that their changing habitat and their expanding population has led many Australian white ibis to supplement their diets from landfill sites and bins in cities and towns. This change in their behaviour has led to their national nickname, the bin chicken, which is kind of cute until you remember that they are a wetland bird, and then it's kind of heartbreaking, and maybe this nickname is actually a bit cruel to our ibis friends. As big city birds, we've studied ibis in the urban environment, but I've also been involved in some studies of ibis out in the, the natural wetlands of western New South Wales and Queensland. And this species is highly mobile, and, and that's part of their adaptation to those western wetlands, which flood and then dry out. So they have to travel, whether it's hundreds of kilometres or even thousand kilometres, to other locations where there's good habitat. When we're out in the, uh, the natural habitats, we've caught chicks and they've regurgitated what their parents have fed them. And lo and behold, there's four nice, beautiful frogs just sitting there, you know, that they've been fed. And I like to say to the community when I'm, when I'm talking about ibis, ibis are predators. Now, we don't think of them like lions, but that's what they are. Many birds are actually just out there hunting things and eating, whether it's eating a fly or eating a worm. This is a species that's not going to be eating grass or seeds or other vegetation. That's not what this bird does. Obviously, there's a bunch of birds that eat nectar and those and other you know plant materials. 
they're a predator. They want to eat anything that moves. So they'll probe into the soil for the grubs and, and for worms, but they'll also be hunting frogs and fish and snakes and all sorts of things. Um, you name it, they'll eat it. In the urban environment, it's really interesting because we see that they, yes, definitely eat these natural foods. We see them in the wetlands, we see them in the parks, but they've also adapted to eat a whole suite of completely unnatural foods. And we see them eat vegetables, we see them eat bread, uh, we see them eat all sorts of things that they just naturally wouldn't eat. But when they're throwing rice or noodles or tomato, they'll eat it. That reflects their ability to adapt. Uh, it also reflects their versatility. Fun fact, when ibis are standing around, their collective noun is a colony of ibis. And when they're flying, their collective noun is a wedge because they fly together in a triangular pattern. When you see a group of Australian white ibis in your local area day after day, you might be fooled into thinking that they permanently stay there. But John says that one of the interesting things that scientists have discovered is that ibis don't always stay in the same spot. The research that we're doing where we mark individual birds, it's important to understand that we have to get a bunch of approvals to do that. It's not a small thing and it's not something that we do lightly. We have to have a scientific justification for the, the methodology. A simple example was we were trying to understand about how the birds were utilising the habitat. Were they moving from the urban environment back out to the western wetlands, for example? And so we were banding chicks at that time with colour bands, and this was quite a number of years ago. And we had a chick that we'd banded in Sydney in Centennial Park, right near the SCG, fly to Townsville. It took a few months, but it flew over 3,000 kilometres. That wasn't unknown for IBIS. There had been banding back in the 1950s out in the Western Wetlands done by CSIRO, and they had some birds move to PNG. It hadn't been done since the 1950s, and it hadn't been done in the urban environment where there was this assumption the population was not so mobile and wasn't really leaving the urban environment. Right there, we've got this simple example that we couldn't have learned about without actually doing something to the bird. Uh, so we needed to either individually mark it or fit it with a transmitter. We've banded uh, chicks in the nest, and that's lifetime research. So we can actually learn about the survival of those chicks. Do they fledge? Do they become adults? Do they breed? If we're doing the monitoring, if community are reporting those observations. We can also learn about how long they live. This is an important piece of information that we don't know about for a lot of native species in Australia, but also globally. So we want to learn about the, the, the species' natural behavior. Now, that fundamentally means that the methodology that we use cannot have a negative impact on the species. If it does, we're failing because we're not learning about the natural behavior. It is an evolving space because technology changes. So tracking is far more common nowadays than it was 20 years ago because there's different technology that allows you to, to investigate different questions and different types of transmitters, at different price points and all these different things. So it's a huge topic that can be discussed. Another bird that has appeared in the Big City Birds research is the Corella. There are three main species of Corellas in Australia, the Western Corella, the Little Corella and the Long-Billed Corella. The Western Corella hangs out in Western Australia. The Long-Billed Corella lives in patches across the country except the Northern Territory. And the Little Corella is widespread throughout Australia. Corellas are a type of cockatoo that is mainly white, with this really cute little short crest that is not visible unless it's raised. 
the Big City Birds team are researching the little corella and the long-billed corella. I reckon the easiest way to tell them apart is by looking at the top part of their bill, which is known as the upper mandible. The little corella has a shorter upper mandible, and the long-billed corella has, you guessed it, a pretty long upper mandible. Another way to tell them apart is the red and pinkish feathers on their face and neck. The little corella has some pink feathers in front of its eyes. My mum always tells me to look for their dirty face. <laughs> the long-billed corella has red feathers on its throat and its face. Their crests are also slightly different shapes. Check out the images in any good bird book or app. Some of the key things that people have shared with me about corellas is their behaviour. And in particular with the little corella, you see them on the power lines, you see them doing flips and hanging upside down. They look like they're having a great time. They're playing. Even on the ground in the park, you'll see them picking up sticks and rolling on their backs and having little wrestles with each other and all these sorts of different behaviours if you pause and, and have a look. With the little corellas and the longbills for that matter, there haven't been a focus of the big city birds. They've sort of part of it because we're interested in what's happening with them and ideally wanted to collect some data to inform future studies. In the Sydney region here, we don't see long-billed corellas that much. They're, they're often seen in smaller numbers and specific locations around the city and, and that shifts with time a little bit. With the little corellas, we see this seasonal influx that they seem to come in bigger numbers in some parts of the city in spring. Other parts of the city, they seem to be there all year round. So there is this, this movement behavior that we don't have a good understanding of. What we also see is that at this time of year, we're seeing quite a few chicks in the population. So there is breeding going on in the Sydney region. These are things that we don't have a great understanding of because we know that in the urban environment, there's far less tree hollows than there are in natural environments. We've got far fewer trees. We've got far fewer big trees and we've got far fewer big old trees with hollows. So, you know, for the parrots, it's this paradox of why we have lots of parrots. Most of them of the parrot species in Australia nest in tree hollows and we see them quite commonly in urban areas, a range of different parrot species. But yeah, there isn't this habitat. So there are just questions around the population there. And then we actually have wing tags, some little corellas in Adelaide as part of a project there. And we wanted to do some GPS tracking, uh, but the corellas had other ideas and removed the GPS transmitters really quickly. But the wing tags are still on those birds. So if people have a keen eye in the uh, Mount Barker, Adelaide region, they obviously fly around. In that region, part of the reason for the research is that they are seen as, again, a nuisance. Uh, they do occur sometimes in very large numbers and can cause quite significant damage to crops and also trees. There's a desire there to understand the size of the population, the movements of the population and the seasonality of those movements. So again, yeah, that's something that we'd love to do some more work in. One of my favourite sounds is when little corellas fly in large groups together and then land on the trees above me. It sounds a bit like this. So why did John and his team go to all this effort to collect data about common urban birds? Through our studies, we've learnt about the behaviour of individuals, but we've also been able to infer that across the population when we have a large sample size. I can tell you that the, the research on the IBIS and other species has directly informed councils, state governments, 
management plans, particularly in relation to ibis or brush turkeys uh, or cockatoos, because these are common species that are, are seen sometimes as a, a pest. I prefer the word nuisance. Lots and lots of consultant reports and, and other scientific literature are referring to these studies because they are the, the foundational information that we have that talks about the behavior of these birds, the, the fact that they are utilizing these different habitats, the fact that the population is X and it changes with time and it's changing with seasons. They're being able to monitor the individuals in those populations. That allows us to actually dig deeper and have a greater understanding. On a bigger scale, when we've done some of this work, uh, so not big city birds, but still on, on white ibis and stronic ibis, and we're tracking them out in the, in the western wetlands at so the whole Murray-Darling Basin, that data, even though we're talking about species that aren't listed as threatened, but there are questions about the, uh, the impacts on that habitat, by tracking these species, we're directly informing the management of environmental flows, which is ensuring that breeding events are maintained and water is actually pumped to areas so that huge numbers of species of birds, fish, mammals, plants, everything successfully actually have their reproductive cycle succeed. And so that tracking data is informing that national management. There are fundamental reasons for, for doing this work on common species as well as on threatened species. If bird behaviour fascinates you too, you and your birdwatching mates are invited to join John in the Big City Birds program. Here's how to get involved. Big City Birds is an app and a website, uh, so you can just report through your computer if you prefer to not use the app, the app on your phone. We encourage people to report their sightings of our target species, so white ibis, soft-crested cockatoos, brush turkeys, little and long-billed crellas, but actually you can report any bird species and then report their behavior. So within the app, you can report whether you're seeing nesting, you can report what they're foraging on, or whether they're being fed by people and what they're being fed, or you know if they're eating native foods. I was uh, walking to the beach and spotted a brush turkey eating a bandicoot that had been run over by a car. Now, not a classic food source for a brush turkey. They are uh, a species that's actually an omnivore like us. So I do see them eating blades of grass and eating berries and nuts. And they're also raking through the leaf litter to eat worms and, and grubs and skinks and little things. There are endless opportunities for observation to report. And this is informing how we're seeing species change their behaviors. One of the other areas that's quite interesting is through different innovations. And we've seen sulfur-crested cockatoos learn how to open household bins to go and get food out of the bins. And so people can report those behaviours and some of those behaviours have been observed down in Lawn, but also up in the Sydney region. So, you know, there's 1,500 kilometres between those populations. Those cockies aren't moving those distances. That's really interesting. This is a novel behaviour that's hugely complex that has popped up into geographically distant locations through innovation. And so behaviours actually can be also looked at through innovation. I know lots of people might be using eBird or bird data, and that's great, but they actually collect different data. And, I, and I'll give you an example. As part of the brush turkey research, we did an analysis where we looked at the reports of the presence of birds, so what you do in, in eBird, and we looked at the, the reports of nesting and the reports of chicks, and then you know that was specifically looking at breeding. And 
lo and behold, and I, I use eBird myself, most people don't report those habitat features or those behaviors of things like nesting. So you might report feeding a chick or something like that. There's obviously those codes you can report. But then when we compare it to our data set where we have far less reports of presence because, of course, lots of people use the big two, and that's fine, that's good, we had a vastly more reports of behavior and of nesting. And that's really an interesting thing for an ecologist to understand, especially for in the brush turkeys and ibis examples. These are species that are increasing in urban areas. Where are they nesting? Uh, how are they adapting? Where are they spreading? Uh, you know, and so there's real value in sharing those observations directly to the research. And yeah, you can also connect with us on social media if you want to see some fun posts and things about big city birds. So get online. I've put a link to the Big City Birds website and social media accounts in the show notes for you. I've talked to lots of other ecologists and they tell me that sometimes researching urban birds is a really difficult job. But to John, it's all worth it. It's actually been really rewarding, even though some people might be like, why are you, doing, why are you tagging Ivis in the city? It's been really rewarding to inform land managers and certainly I've spoken with dozens over the years and you know see that that information is still being utilized um, and updated information is being utilized but also have had dozens and dozens of interactions with people on ground but also with through community talks and through social media and other events people have questions people have ibis stories i, I do a bunch of stuff on on abc radio in sydney and and you know ibis always goes off as a topic to talk about Many thanks to John and the Big City Birds team for their ongoing work in this space. I'm going to look at the Australian white ibis and the corellas that live around me in a whole different light. And many thanks to Mark Anderson, who continues to gift us his bird call recordings. If you're listening to this episode the week that it goes live, I'm doing a special Instagram giveaway with my new friends at Red Parker. Red Parker is a cool Tasmanian design company that celebrates the amazing animals, nature and diversity of our world. They are not paying me to say this. In fact, they don't know that I'm about to give them a plug on the podcast, but they're doing such good work, so I think they deserve a shout out. Anywho, you can go into the running to win an Ibis pin and an Ibis pair of socks. Search for Weekend Birder on Instagram to find out more. Friends, season two continues, and in the next episode, we're going to meet a Paralympian who adores birdwatching. Speak to you then.